I want you to open your Bible briefly to Acts chapter 3 and verse 9. I'm still there. This whole year I've been there. Acts 3 and verse 9. Acts 3 says repent. We spent two or three weeks on that. Changing your mind. Loathing yourself because of your sins as Ezekiel speaks up. God said when you see yourself like I see you. When the holiness of God is revealed to you. And you see how sinful you really are in light of that, then the Bible says you loathe yourself. There's a, a really a hatred of what you've done, what you've been, and how awful a person you really, really were on the inside. And when God meets you that way and you repent, it means you change your mind about what you're going to do. I'm making a new decision here. I'm turning around. And it says, and be converted in verse 19. And, of course, the word converted is a turning around. It's a turning of your heart and your life to God. You've never been there before. You've only heard about it. You don't know much about it, even though your religious life, it didn't mean much. You go to church all your life. You figure, well, it's probably this or that. It's no big deal. Church is just church. But when you're converted, when you really have changed your mind and your direction, and you have put your hands, so to speak, on the plow to go in a way you've never really been before, and then you begin to realize how much you don't know and how ignorant you really are and how uncertain you are able to even cope with the things that God, let alone do it. I don't know if I can do that. I don't even know if I can walk away from this or give up that. I mean, I'm confronted with so much in my life that's been added on there before I was saved that I'm full of corruption, just full of it. I mean, my mind doesn't even think right. It has to be renewed. And God begins to show this, and all of a sudden, the Christian life is like, whew, man. He said, your sins will be blotted out, and then the times of refreshing shall come. That's the Holy Spirit. I think it's very clear to me that that's the great need in your life for the Spirit to come. After that, is the direction of the Spirit into a life that God wants you to live. Now, last week, we talked about being sanctified. And the words sanctify or sanctification and holiness are not anything that the church likes to hear about. Because sanctified means something beyond, you know, me. And holy is, is not possible. Because I still see myself in the light of my mistakes and problems and and I've never been able to rise above it, and how can I now? So we still look at things like that. But how can I be all that? It's one of those things, you're a new Christian, and you're looking at this, and God says, be you therefore holy, for I am holy, and you think, there's no way I can do that. How can I be holy? Who could I be holy around? Everybody knows how unholy I am. But there it is. It says it, be you therefore holy. God called you to be holy. So you look at the word sanctify, you begin to investigate it. It means literally to set apart. That God, when he saved you, he set you apart for himself to live the way he wants you to live in a world that is disgusted with him. And you'll realize that the more you begin to live it when the persecution comes because of your choices. But a sanctified life is a life that is set apart unto God. It is a holy life because it's related to God. God saving you 
and making you his own makes you holy. You're holy property. You may not have experienced a lot of holy living and holy choices yet, but you're not holy because you've done a bunch of stuff right. You're holy because God has accepted you. Him accepting you means that he wants you to live a holy life. I don't think you one day arrive at holiness because you are holy. You arrive at perfection, perhaps, because Paul talks about perfection. He wants you to be therefore perfect, or that we may present every man perfect in Christ. And it's a growth. The saint is one who keeps setting himself apart. He sees something, and he makes that decision that everybody has to make. I will. Okay, and then he does that, and so he goes a little further, and, and some more. I will. I will. And he keeps living separated. Now, there's the problem with separation and sanctification. Let me quote something for you from the Old Testament, because this point is not a New Testament point. It's really made for us back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. God said to his people, he said, For you are a holy people under the Lord. Now, there wasn't a one of them that wasn't stiff-necked. You know that. But God said, you're not holy because you do everything I want you to do. I chose you. You are mine. Therefore, he said, you are a holy people unto the Lord thy God. Thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people. Now, we read that in Peter also. We are a chosen generation. Remember that. He said, you are a special people unto himself. And unto himself, you are above all the peoples that are on the earth. God could have chosen anybody on this earth to identify himself to or reveal himself to and have as his people, anybody. But he chose a nation that nobody wanted. Just like God didn't choose you because everybody thought you were a hero. It bothered nobody that you came to church and got saved. If you were famous and rich or something and you started living a holy life, people would be concerned. But like Paul wrote, he said, look who God chose. God didn't choose to be his people, the outstanding people of our communities and our world. He chose a bunch of nobodies, just normal average losers, us. And he brought that kind of people to himself. Difficult, yes, trust me. Sometimes you're difficult. We are all on occasion difficult. Married people know exactly what that means. There's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of change that's got to take place. We can't walk in the light that he has unless we're willing but God says, you're a holy people. You are special to me above all the peoples on the earth. Now, if you weren't, I would say, if you weren't that, he wouldn't spend a lot of time caring for you. But because he doesn't leave you alone, he evidences that you're his people and he's not going to let you go. When he saved you, his plan for your life was to make you the kind of man he wants to be different from all the people in the world. He's going to judge the world. He's going to judge the world because of the world's sins. And if you live in sin like the world, you'll have to be judged with them because God is righteous. So to keep you from being judged along with the rest of the world, he's changing me, and only he can change me. And I'm glad about that, but let me tell you something. This change, this business of being separated 
and being set apart isn't easy. In Exodus chapter 33, if you would, would you look there? Exodus chapter 33, God is talking to Moses. Moses and God are having this conversation. And in verse 12, Exodus 33, And Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and, and you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said to me, I know you by name. And you have found grace in my sight. Now, Moses must have thought, I have found grace in your sight. You want me to, I'm in a multitude of a million people here. And I'm probably the least of this bunch, he would think. But then he goes on to say, verse 13, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I might know you. Well, there's a lot of New Testament right here, a whole lot. If I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way. Only you can, so that I may know you, so that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. And God said in verse 14, my presence shall go with you and I'll give you rest. That's that refreshing. In verse 15, he said, if thy presence go not with us, then don't carry us up. Now, verse 16, this is my verse. But wherein shall it be known here that I and your people have found grace in your sight? How shall it be known that you have chosen us out of the world, chosen wicked people like us out of a dark world and brought us to yourself and given grace to us? How will this be known to these other nations and so forth? Listen, if it not be that you go with us, and if you don't go with us, he said, how shall we be separate? But he said, how will we know that we have found grace in your sight? If you goeth not with us, he said, in this way, we'll be separated from all the people in the world. Separated. In other words, we can't walk with the world and be good guys to them on their terms. And at the same time, walk in the light that God gives us. You can't mingle with the world. You can't add stuff to the world and think it's all right if God says don't do that. Because back in Deuteronomy 7, he pointed out all the wickedness of the nations around them, of the society around us. God pointed out all the things that he's going to judge, the wicked ways of people. And he didn't try to change them. He just told his people, stay away from all that. Don't have that as a desire in your heart because I'm going to judge all of that. You're going to be separated. Being separated from the world is how the world will know that you're different. Something in you drives you. It makes you willing to give up all of their so-called pleasures and joys. Holds you back from all that stuff. God's going to judge it. Not many Christians are willing to go that far. But this is that separated life. Remember 2 Corinthians 6, we read it last week, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Don't let darkness and light dwell with you. Don't let evil into your life. You've got to make quality decisions the rest of your life that the very things that will judge you and ruin your life, you've got to separate yourself from. It's a choice you have to make. 
And you can. Not everybody does. They do for a moment or two. But then they begin to realize how narrow this walk is and how demanding God is of your will. Oh, man. I think that's when the itching ears and man's stories begins to replace the gospel. People don't want it to be like that. They don't want to have to live that way. They don't want this faith life to be necessary. The just shall live by faith. They don't want that. They like to make it an option. The just should live by faith. We should praise the Lord. We should, we should, and we ought to. But if you don't, you know, then here comes that new theology. God knows you're just human and in the flesh, and there's a lot of things you can't do. I mean, those things that he says are really over your head anyway. And the church believes that because they like that. I'm losing my responsibility to be guilty. Or guilt is no longer in my life as something i got to deal with because, hey, I can't help it. Hey, it's not my fault. Hey. So the message of the church changes from holiness to fun. Get bigger, brighter, better. People, numbers, money, appearance, praise, honor, notoriety. All of that replaces the gospel message that you have got to be holy. God wants you to live as one of his people that have been changed by him. He won't make you. He can. He won't make you. But he says, choose to separate yourself from all this stuff and live unto me as I want you to live. Listen to these words. According as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. That's in Ephesians 1. Before the foundation of the world, before all the choosing started, he chose us that we should be holy and without blame. And look at all the things that made us unholy. You don't need a rocket scientist to explain to you what makes people unholy. It's doing anything that God is against. Think of that. Anything that God is against. Or listen to this. We read this last week in 1 Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, even your separation, that you abstain from fornication. And there's other verses besides that. I wonder why I would mention fornication. Because fornication is the one major sin that has captured and ruining this world. Because it comes from a Greek word, pornea. And you know, even the sound of the word, you understand. Pornea, pornography. But it has to do with any kind of sexual uncleanness, any kind of lewdness. You could find it in movies. You could find it in magazines. You could find it in conversation. Stuff that brings you over into the sensual, erotic part of your life. Even though your heart is crying out, this is wrong. God's people have been delivered from the penalty of that. Don't go back into it. You don't have to have that in your life, just like drugs. You don't have to have it. But you want it, and you want it more than you want to live separate from it. You don't want to give it up. And so you, 
you make excuses and you dive in. You know, homosexuality, lesbianism, pornography. The pornographic world today, the pornography business today is, I don't have enough zeros to tell you how much money is spent on pornography. And the effect that it has on people, on their minds, on their thinking. And look what happens when boys and girls begin to date. The first thing they want to do is get familiar. And they do. You start touching, hugging. Next thing you know, you're experimenting with a this or a that. And the next thing you know, you've messed up. And when you do that, the devil comes right around the corner to condemn you for what you've done so that if you do go to church, you're not going to open your mouth and praise because you're guilty. And you don't want to deal with it because you don't know if you can or not. I don't know if I can give it up. I don't know if I can give up drugs or that lewd music I listen to, that suggestive ideas in music. And it just drives me, man. It makes me want to. That's killing the world. And it's in the church. Sexual misbehavior is in the church. It's not trying to get in. It is in the church. And it prevents, listen to me, it prevents you separating yourself. You want to. Your desire is to separate yourself and not be controlled by that kind of life. But ask most anybody that's hooked on pornography. I've talked to a couple. Ask most anybody. I was shocked to hear not only men, but women. They can't let go of it. They can't give it up. Try to. You can't do it. There's something in you that's found its lodging place in you. You're its habitation. And it drives and it throws pictures into your mind. And when you've seen something, it brings pictures back to get your mind off of whatever you're doing, maybe in church, to get your mind back on this self-gratification thing. And then when you're alone by yourself, you abuse yourself because of the influence of that spirit. And it keeps you from living the kind of life that God wants you to live, whether it's the movies, the magazines, the literature, whatever it is. He mentions it several times in the New Testament. You could say drugs, drinking, going to parties, acting this or concerts where the music is just awful, where the spirit is vile. And I think, what is a Christian there? Because they've got to have it. They're controlled by sin has dominion over them. They go to church, they feel guilty, and they feel the shame, but they can't get away from it. They can't turn away from it. And they wrestle with their feelings. I know they do. They wrestle with their feelings, and they feel bad about this. They feel bad about that. But come nightfall or come computer time, Nobody's watching. It only takes a couple of buttons. There it is. And even though you know you're not supposed to, you do it anyway. That, folks, is what keeps us from being separated, sanctified, and cut off from the world. It's sin and our weakness to it. Pornea weakens you. Anything that controls you masters you. It rules your life. It owns you. You are convinced you can't live without it. You can't do without it. I just can't stop. I remember 
praying one time with a young man about drugs. He was in turmoil. And he was crying. And he wanted to give up his drugs, but he couldn't give up his music. And he said, when I listen to my music, I want my drugs. That's what he told me. I don't know how true that is. I've never had the problem with either one of those things. Well, maybe Andy Williams in music growing up or some of that. But, but these things have a grip on people. Do you think the church has grown quieter in its praise and worship because it is filled more and more with God? Quite the opposite. Something is ruling out God. The conscience of man is not free to, to worship and praise because he is condemned by his life. He can't live a separated life if you keep going back to your sins. I mean, you turn away from your sin, you got to give it up. Unless you think you can do what you want to do. I think a lot of people quit trying. They start making excuses. And, well, you know, I, I don't know if it'll work for me or not. But thank God. Thank God. Here comes God. Here comes God who says, He that started a good work in you is going to complete it. I'm going to dig around in your life. I'm going to get so involved in your life that you might have a miserable life for a little while. Because I'm going to leave you alone. If I leave you alone, I must judge you because you'll be like the world. But I am going to deal with your life. I'm going to bring you to me. I called you out. I want you to live a holy life. A holy life is not an option. It's not something you should do. It is a necessity. That's what a holy life is, and God wants you to live one. Now, turn to Hebrews 12, and I want to show you what I want to show you today. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 is about chastisement. But that's what God does to get our attention and turn us around. If he does not do this, you will not make it. I'd like for that to get your attention, too, while we're getting back there to Hebrews 12. He said that if we are not chastened by the Lord, then we're illegitimate. We're not valid children of the Lord unless the chastening of God is taking place in our life. Chastening and chastisement. This is how God deals with you and me to separate us from the world. This is how he does it. He's going to separate us by chastisement. Now, chastisement doesn't have to mean that you're just being spanked all the time. The word can mean instruction. The word can mean nurture or have that meaning. It can mean teaching. It's various ways that God gets your attention. He can speak softly and quietly to you and tell you things that you need to do or not do. And that influence in your life would come under the word chastening. It's a part of God's instruction in your life. God is bringing you somewhere. You've got to know what he wants you to do and where he wants you to come in order to get there. So God speaks to us. If we don't listen very well, then he really speaks to us. I mean, it's one of those boom things where, whew, or when God said, you better straighten up. Or he could say something like this. He said, 
Now listen, I've told you twice. Now either you change or I'm going to change you. What would that mean? Either you change or I am going to change you. Could God change you? But you know what? He lovingly shows you what change he wants to make, and then he gives you the opportunity to make that decision. He may tell you to stop doing certain things. Quit eating so much, maybe. Quit drinking. Quit. You say, man, I want to, Lord God, I want to. But I go, oh, man, I am, oh, Lord. And he says, now listen, either you stop that or I'm going to make you stop it. And you say, what, uh, that last part, what does that mean? Well, it means I'm going to do from my side whatever I have to do to convince you. You're not going to do that no more. Oh, okay. Okay, then, then you do that and bang. He can lower the boom on you and suddenly that food you ate and made you sick. Put you on your bed. Job spoke of being chastened on your bed. That God can see to it sometime that if you don't listen to him, he has a ways and means committee that can get your attention and bring you to a place where now you're listening. The situation you're going through, the trial you're having didn't have to be. It wasn't a necessary trial. Not all of them, but in this man's case. Now, if you make better choices, you wouldn't have had this. Like Jeremiah said, your sins have withheld God's blessings from you. Your sins. Don't make little of your sins. Any little disagreement with God is a big deal. And if you don't deal with it, oh, I know I should. <laughs> then bang. God puts you on your knees or puts you on your face. You lost everything. Or... Some problem came up, and what do Christians do whenever they get in a problem or a situation that they don't know what to do about? They go to church. Oh, God. Well, now he's got your attention. What drove you to God? He did. He drove you to God. He brought you to himself. And he'll let you cry out for a while with no relief. That miserableness that turns people away from sin, he'll let that thing rest on you for a while. Oh, God. Oh, God. But we make so many excuses. Let me take Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. He said, how often do we give in so easy? We quit trying. We convince ourselves because we're weak. We're weak-minded. Even the weightlifters and the strong people, they're weak. They quit trying. I can't. It's too hard. It's over my head, Lord. And he said, you know, in verse 1, he said, consider, consider this. In chapter 11, you saw a bunch of people. They're called the heroes of the faith. You look at all the circumstances and the situations that they encountered None of them quit. That's why they're in Hebrews 11. A lot of people quit. God wants you to see the ones that didn't quit. They hung in there. Their life was not an easy life. It wasn't a convenient life. 
God added a dimension of peace to that life that caused them to want to stay separated and live that way. But these people went through a hard time. He said, now, you're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. These are the people that have gone before you whose life has been portrayed before you, and you see what pleased God in their lives. And they're normal people, average people just like you. They're no different than you are. So then seeing that we are compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses, he said, let us, let us lay aside every weight. This is separated life. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily entangle us and hold us down and mire us to non-effectiveness and make us quiet and, and no testimony in the church or in the community. Just let us lay aside all of that. And let us run this race that God is leading us to run. Let us run this race with endurance. You don't think you can? Consider Jesus in verse 2. He said, consider Jesus who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. He knew what was coming. The revelation that God gave to him wasn't convenient. Do we in this room think that the way God is going to demand us to live is going to be easy? You think it's going to be a simple, convenient life? Not at all. It is with difficulty, Peter wrote, that even the righteous are saved. Difficulty. It's because of all these decisions you've got to make that your mind doesn't want to make. And all the excuses and all of your past Anything to keep from being separated and sanctified, living a holy life. And oh, you want to back up and back up. But he says, there is a race that you're going to run. You have to be unentangled or disengaged from the sins of this world and the sin that has so easily beset you. The sin that so easily beset you is the sin of giving in. Because he talks about enduring. Consider him who endured such, lest you be weird and faint in your mind. We give up easy. That's what this is about. So quit giving up. Quit convincing yourselves you can't live this life. Quit telling yourself you don't have to praise or you don't have to do this or do that. Quit telling yourself that. God didn't save you because you were a master and clever person. You had nothing to offer God when he saved you. Remember last week we said you're bought with a price, you're his purchased possession? Not because you had some, whoa, boy. We were nothing. God doesn't need my talents. I need God's gifts. That's what I need. I have nothing to offer God. In fact, out of the miry clay... Wicked, despicable people, what in the world can they offer God? Nothing. Look at my past, the, the things I came out of, and look at the past that you came out of. What can we offer God? How can any of this dirt in my life fit into the betterment of a church? It has to die. It has to go. It has to be cleansed. The word sanctified includes cleansing. I got nothing to offer God. We are all as an unclean thing. We're all defiled. All we like sheep, all of us, have gone astray. There's not a right 
want in here any right ways about us, he said. That's what he called to himself. Look at the job, the undertaking that God has when he called those kind of people out of that kind of a life. Look at how much effort it's going to take from heaven to change us. Because if we don't change, if we stay as we were, we get judged along with the rest of the world. That's 1 Corinthians 11, our communion sermon. So, boy, God says, I have a way I'm going to lead you. I have a place I'm going to take you. I've gone to prepare a place for you. I don't want to come back and get you. But I want you to prepare yourself for heaven. I want you to make yourself ready as a bride for the groom. This is a process. This is a process about being called being saved, salvation. And God says, I'm going to do a work in your life. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to show you things. I'm going to talk to you when you're not thinking about it. When you're driving down the road feeling good, you just got paid and you're some money in your pocket, you're feeling good, and all of a sudden a weakness in your life pops up and you can't enjoy your money. I'm going to deal with you. I didn't call you out of darkness to let you die in darkness. God said, I didn't save you so I could judge you. I call people like you to show and convince the whole world that the might and the power of God to change a human life is greater than anything the world can invent because all the world's inventions and designs cannot change a human soul. And God says, I'm going to make out of you something the world will have to take note. You have been with God. They can't be, but he called you to be. You're going to change us. We're going to live that separated life because God isn't going to let you not be separated. So he continues to deal with you. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. And have you forgotten? Of course, they said in verse 4, you haven't resisted to the shedding of your blood, have you? Jesus did, didn't he? Did in the garden Jesus agonize? That's one of the words he used. John did a teaching on that here one night. They agonize. It's, a, it's an intense word. It declares an intense moment. It's kind of like a crossroads in your life. You better make the right decision here. Humanity depends on it. And he was in agony in the garden, and the blood mingled with sweat. Remember, it fell to the ground. He shed his blood in the garden over a decision to save a wretch like us. Oh, God. And so he said in verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortations which speaketh unto you as unto children? And this is quoting Proverbs 3, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Because he's going to rebuke you. I had a human father. And whether you knew yours or not, you had a daddy too. Everybody gets one daddy and one mama, and they're all different. My daddy didn't take much time or concern because I didn't really get to know him until I was growing up, but there wasn't much of this daddy instruction in my life, daddy correction. This wasn't like my dad kept his eye on how I was living. He knew what I was doing. I think he kind of appreciated that because that's the way I think he lived. So he didn't want to correct that. You know, be a hypocrite if he did. 
My mother was different in that she continually reminded me. And I thought, oh, leave me alone, woman. But she cared about how I acted. She didn't know all of it, but she cared how I acted. She cared whether I had manners or not, whether I was polite or not. My mother wanted me to be socially acceptable. That was back in the day when you did that. That was back when you had to comb your hair before you went to school. Your appearance in the world and how you conduct your, your behavior in the world was important. It was important to my mother. My dad didn't care much about it. But let me play like my dad did. Because the Bible speaks of your fathers who corrected you in verse 9. He said, you had fathers in your life that corrected you or they chastised you when you were wrong? Why? Because they don't want you to do wrong. They saw you driving fast through town. You didn't know they were in town, but you'd borrowed a car and you was seeing what it would do from here to there, and they caught you. And they didn't have cell phones in, so they couldn't call me. But when you got home, your dad said, you're not driving this car for a month. I said, whoa. What happened? He said, I saw you driving through town, this and doing that. He said, oh, no, that, that wasn't me. Now it's two months. Because you lied. You're calling me a liar now. You're not going to live like that, son. You're not going to act like that in this community. You're going to be separate from people that do like it because I'm not going to let you do that. And so they chastised us. They spanked us or instructed us or dealt with us in some way that wasn't fun, comfortable. You're not going to drink and live in this house. You're not going to do that. No, and this. No, you can't. No, you cannot. You're not going to wear that. You are not going to wear that. No. Somebody, like he's talking here, somebody really does care about how you live. Let me tell you something. God cares about everybody in this room about how you live. God cares about everything you do. Everything you do, he cares about. His instruction is what he goes by. When he says to Thomas here, this is the way, walk ye in it. And he says, amen, Lord. And then he goes out tomorrow and something comes up and he's conscious that, uh-oh, you're not living the way he wants you to. Well, I, I know. I, you know yeah, blah, 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 blah. God says, Thomas, either you quit that or I'm going to make you quit it. If Thomas is a wise man, he'll say, then I will quit it because I don't want you to make me do anything. I just want to be on the good side of you. Show me what to do, and I'll do it. Because God says, if you don't do it, I'm going to chastise you. Otherwise, I'll have to judge you. But I'm going to see to it that you are instructed and taught one way or another that you're going to cut yourself off from this world. You're not going to drink that beer in private without getting caught. You're not going to bring travesty on my name. You sit in here and call yourself a Christian and all that, and you go out there and you live like the world. I'm reading a book of Ezekiel. Just read a couple of chapters how God made it a point to say, you have taken my name. You've gone into captivity in Babylon. You've gone into Babylon as the people of God, and you act like anything but the people of God. 
God said, I am not sanctified in you. You have brought shame to me. Because if Christ is in you, it's got to be seen in the choices you make. Whether you're driving slow, you quit drinking, you won't run around with that, you change your clothes, your behavior, your attitudes. Everything's got to change your his. It's not funny anymore when you mess up. Those old stories about our past are not funny anymore. They were killing us. We've come into a whole new way of life that not many people get to live. And God has opened our eyes to see the way, and yet, oh, I don't know if I can do that, and we stumble with it, but God is there to make sure that we do it. Now notice in chapter 12, verse 6, for whom the Lord loves, what does he do? He chastens. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Reproof, warning, instruction, so forth. Now, let me ask you a question. If God did not love you, would he instruct you, chastise you? Well, no, it's not hard to answer. I know you don't want to, but whom does the Lord chastise? Those he loves. If I said, is everybody chastised? You'd have to say no. Because a whole lot of this world's in darkness. He's left them alone. Why doesn't he leave you alone? Because before the foundation of the world, God called you to live a holy and a separated life. And you're not even capable of doing that without him doing his part. But he does. He does. Because he loves you enough. He doesn't want you to be judged along with the rest of the world. So he does his work in you. He does his work to deal with you and turn you around. And notice, verse 7, if you endure this, God will deal with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? Hey, verse 8. Hey, world. Hey, church. Verse 8. Hey, if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you're illegitimate. It's a tough word, the word bastard, but it simply means one who is not legitimate, does not belong. I mean, these were kept out of the church for, what, 40 generations, 400 years? But he said, if you're without chastisement, you're not his. Now, wait a minute. Didn't he say that whereof all are partakers? Well, then how is it that some aren't? Because you made a bad decision. You made a bad decision. You listened to bad advice. You got some bad friends. You read something you shouldn't have read, or you listened to something you shouldn't have heard because somebody convinced you that it's not necessary, that you don't have to do it. That yes, God is going to proclaim all of his holiness and his goodness to you. And I hate this theology I'm about to just, I hate it. But there's this voice that comes and says, but he also knows that you're just flesh. 
and that you really can't do all of those things. But he wants you to know how exalted he is and wants you to know also that while you strive to approach that, you can't do it. And so you quit trying. You back off. Again, the church then begins to lose its message of holiness. It begins to get into a message of social goodness or humanism. Man is the center of the world and the universe. Man doesn't need God. He is a God to himself. And you leave God out of it. And if you keep preaching about holiness, you're one of those holiness churches. Remember a guy said that to me one night. I was in London, Kentucky, getting ready to come home, getting some gas, and told him where I'd been. He said, that's one of them holiness churches, isn't it? And I remember my answer. I didn't think of it. It just plopped out of my mouth. I just said, I thought they all were. Isn't that one of those holiness churches? And I said, I thought they all were. I wouldn't want an invitation to an unholy church. Would you? I wouldn't want to marry an unholy woman. Well, nobody's holy, then you're married to one. I wouldn't want to run around with unholy friends. Now, this is my unholy friend. I wouldn't want to dress. This is my unholy dress. You're condemning yourself. You're kidding yourself. No, everything's supposed to be, because God's related to it, it's supposed to be holy. Amen. God's instruction and teaching and his drawing you, his caring about you, even when you were drunk, even when you were in her house or his house, even you were sitting in front of that bad movie or whatever you were doing, even then, and he hammered on your headpiece, that's your mind, he didn't have to. He didn't have to make you get up and leave the party like this. Oh, man. He didn't. Uh, oh, God. He didn't have to do that, but aren't you glad he did? Because he is changing you. The guilt and the awfulness of what you're doing and how you're living and how much of a rebel you are and irresponsible. Even in those bad times in your life. I remember going one time to jail and get a guy out of jail, and he was still about two-thirds drunk when I got him. I wore him out all the way home preaching to him, just wore him out. time he got home, he was crying. Of course, that's not hard to do today. Because a man, even in a bad state of mind, God can deal with him. He can. How many people have been backslid, convinced that died, blah, 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 and then God dealt with them? Turn them around. And they come back to God never to turn around again. This is what God can do to separate us from the stuff that rules and controls us. God has a way. And that way is himself and his word. And that's what he's going to do. Now, let me close with saying this. There are three things about Hebrews 12. I want to say number one is that chastisement... Chastisement demonstrates God's love for you. It's a demonstration when God's dealing with you, when he's dealing with you and you're thinking about it a lot. 
And you're wanting to deal with your life too. That's the evidence of God's love for you. But whom he loves, he chases. He must correct us or being righteous, he must judge us. He can't let you live like the world because you go to church. And, oh, you know, he can't let you live like the world and go to heaven. You know, one of the themes in any funeral, at least to me, one of the outstanding themes of a sermon when a good person dies is everybody is glad about their goodness. Well, they were good. They did this. And any funeral you've ever been to, and it's appropriate to find something good to say about the departed. I mean, you shouldn't sit up there and say, this guy was a dog. Oh, he was awful. He's a thief and a robber, he cussed, lied, and cheated. That's not a time for that. If they were, everybody out there knows it anyway. But the point is that all your goodness won't get you to heaven. You'll never be too good not to go to hell. Because goodness doesn't save you. All the things that you're trying to do to be good doesn't save you. The thing that saves you is repentance and conversion, being born again. That's what saves you. If you don't have that, you don't have anything. Just a lot of goodness. People think you're in heaven, you're on the big golf course in the sky, catching the big fish in the big pond. Woo! Boy shot the big elk in heaven. I don't think so. I don't think so. I doubt there's any fish or elk in heaven. Amen. But the second thing is that it proves that you're a son. God's chastisement of your life proves that you're his son. God cares about you. You young people. He really does care about you. Even if you're not listening. Even if you're not paying attention, he cares about you. You will one day. Because he didn't drag you in here to bore you to tears. Now, the tears, when they come, will be tears of sorrow and tears of repentance. Listen, I am so glad that I can be here where I am right now, doing what I'm doing, saying what I'm saying, because I know that God is in it. There's not a better place in the world for me to be right now than right here. Because I know in whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And what he has started in me, I can't finish it, but he'll finish it. He even said in 1 Peter, after you have suffered a while, he will establish, strengthen, settle, and so forth you. Only he can do that. He does that in various ways. That's what I've been trying to say today. He does that in various ways. And you'll find at the end of all your descriptions that he did these things to separate you from everything that used to control you. That's what he's doing. And finally, he said, his chastisement, verse 10, he said that we might be partakers of his holiness. Wow. That's pretty heady. God is holy. I cannot with words, the words I have, adequately describe the holiness of God. That's a dimension I cannot relate to. I take him at his word, and he is because the Bible says he is, but 
it seemed to be way over my head. However, he told me to be that way because he is that way. There's only one way for me to be like anything that he is, whether it's faith, love, and hope, is to partake of his word and to believe that word in my heart. Galatians 2. If you'll turn there, we'll get ready to stop. Galatians 2. Verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. When he was crucified, I was too. But even now, in a different way of saying it, as I am walking with him, I'm walking with him carrying a cross that he said I will need. Remember that? Bear his cross daily. While I am walking with him, where he leads me, I will follow. I carry my cross as I follow. What for? Because along the way, he'll say, here's a problem in your life, Hamilton. You got to give this up. What's the big deal? Because you're controlled by it. Maybe it's sports. You're controlled. Your life, your schedule, your time is controlled by your overwhelming urge to put this first. It's becoming an idol. And when the sport world doesn't go well for you, you come to church the same way as if you'd sinned. You're downcast. Nobody should be ruled by anything like that. Nobody. Maybe you need to give it up. Uh-huh. Huh. Uh. Well, take up lacrosse. Who? You mean that little stick with a net on it and throwing something you can't see? Uh-uh. God may say, look how stubborn you are. Look how you're defiant. You want to defend yourself like Job did before me. Though he slay me, yet will I follow him, yet I will maintain my ways before him. Mm-mm, that's not good. That's not good. Maybe you've got to give up a lot of things. Maybe it's, if it's not sports, maybe it's, maybe it's your business. Maybe you're consumed with some Journey through life of getting, having, being, or whatever. I don't know what it would be. Something that has taken you away from God that when it doesn't go well with you, you're despondent. No man should be ruled like that by anything. But so he says, now here's a cross. I want you to put that on this cross and die, die to it. So you're no longer needing that in your life. Say, well, Lord... What are you going to do? Either you change or what? Or I'll change you. All right, all right, all right. I've been changed a couple times by you. Let me deal with it. God ain't going to leave us alone. As we go through life, that cross goes with us. Now listen to what Paul said. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. But what? Is there evidence in you people in this room right now, is there evidence of Christ living in you? Can I look at you and say, this is a purchased possession evidencing the owner of that property in their life? You still got your same face, and sadly, you still look like you always did. But there's somebody in you that is not seen to us. 
but he's the hope of glory. He's the joy of life. He is the reason for living. He is the one who takes us by still waters and green pastures and even through the valley of the shadow of death. We're losing our fear and we're coming into peace. Because didn't he say in Hebrews 12 that unto those that are exercised by this chastisement, unto them there will be a peaceable fruit of righteousness brought forth? That's what he said, Hebrews 12. There will be a peaceable fruit of righteousness. Verse 11. Wouldn't that be something to have? Righteousness is right ways. Right thinking, right doing, right talking, right, 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 right. Everything is right when it's in agreement with God. Lining up with God, doing things that are right. Not dreading the cost, just doing it. Oh. And even though your life is like a Hebrews 11, so many things are difficult and you got to deal with this and deal with that. Oh, when there's peace. The peaceable expression or fruit of righteousness. Not fearing tomorrow, not dreading to this or that, but this peaceable fruit of righteousness. So, in conclusion, verse 12, you go back to Hebrews. Quit your whining. Quit your crying. Quit your complaining, your excuse making. Quit getting on the phone and calling up people whom you want to get sympathy from or somebody that will rub on your back and make it easy for you. Oh, quit. Be harder on yourself than that. Don't give yourself that kind of luxury. Lift up those hands that hang down. Doesn't he say that? In other words, that's not a good thing. I'm just a poor Hands hanging down person, I can't get them up, for I'm falling and failing all the time, and I'm not very strong, don't know how I'm going to make it through this day. Hallelujah. I sing because I'm happy, I sing because I'm free, his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me, Amen. See, you have to laugh because, well, that's foolish. Your drama has uh, made a point. But don't people act like that? Stand here with me for a couple years. Look at what I look at. And those of you that are laughing, I'm talking to you too. <laughs> I've seen it. Sometimes I do wonder. I'm not supposed to say these things. But I've been here for a hundred years, so I can go ahead and say it. Sometimes I wonder if it even matters. Pick a subject. It doesn't matter what it is. Working on holiness and sanctification. Oh, don't talk about that. You know, they'll all fall. They'll fall out and hurt somebody. No, this is life. This is what God wants. This is that message that is... Set aside. This is that message that a lot of preachers know. They won't like that. They don't like that. They don't like it. But it's necessary. 
What if they go to somewhere? The door's right there. They don't have to come here. How many of you were sent an invitation to come here to church? None of you. You know why you came? Unless you're a kid and the family had no choice. You came because you wanted to, I suppose. And you came to hear me tell funny stories. And have a good entertainment. You know, I could have probably done that. But the end of all of that is death. Wouldn't it be terrible to stand on the judgment bar of God and see a whole congregation headed into the judgment of death and looking at you and say, why didn't you warn us of this place? Why didn't you declare this place to us? Now there's no hope. Like Paul said, I have not shunned to declare the gospel unto you in season or out of season. You've heard it. Your blood's on your own heads now. That's not what I mean by what I'm saying. As he said in Ezekiel 18, he said, you know, you, you've heard it. Now, in closing, let me say this. What shall we then do? We know that before us is a demanding life, demanding decisions. There's no turning back. That's why we stay converted. In fact, I guess if I had to title the message today, I would have titled it Staying Converted. But we know we can't go back to where we were because what we came out of was death. And I'd be a fool to try to walk in with God and say, oh, this is hard. It won't work. What are you going to do? Go back? You're going to go back to where you were? Well, you're a fool with a capital F. Struggle, wrestle, deal with God, fight the good fight, hang on, go through all you, but stay with God. Do not faint. Lift up the hands that hang down and those feeble knees and so forth. Don't quit. Hang in there. Grab yourself by the back of your neck and say, you're going to praise the Lord. You're going to do what's right. Or I'll put you in a cold shower. And trust me, water this time of year is really cold. How about you? Are you set apart unto God this morning? Are you willingly of your own free will, do you actively set yourself apart unto God, resist the devil, and overcome? You can. The choice is yours. Amen. <laughs> Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to bless to our hearts the deeper meaning of this word. Make us forget nothing that you've said to us this morning. Not what I've said, Lord, but what you've said. The thoughts and the intents of their hearts. The things that bring their convictions. May we never forget that. I pray, Lord God, that we've had a fruitful time together this morning, that you have planted seeds in a lot of hearts. And a lot of people are willing to consider the valley of decision to settle these things once for all in your mind, that I will serve God. Help us, Lord, to be what you want us to be. Help us to be like clay in the potter's hands making a beautiful vessel. 
All we can do, Lord, is yield and submit to that. And I pray that you'll find us not only willing, but the good work that you've started will finish with good results. I ask you to bless this crowd of people with all of that. In Jesus' name, amen.